a note to the hearer. Those who give careful reading to studies in the scriptures will discover the studies differ in several respects from many other religious periodicals. There is little in this publication that will appeal to the popular reader. If this magazine be read as a newspaper is read, little profit to the soul will be obtained. What we solicit from our subscribers is this. First, that before taking up any article herein, the reader will lift up his or her heart to God and earnestly ask Him for a spirit of discernment to recognize His truth and an open heart to receive it. Second, that to this end, the reader will study each article with an open Bible before him, turning to each passage quoted to see whether or not the writer proves what he says by a thus saith the Lord. And a third, that he reads slowly, critically and thoughtfully, what is presented in these pages. God has said in his word, He that believeth shall not make haste. Isaiah 28.16 And if ever there was a time when his children needed to give special heed to this admonition, it is now. The children of God are infected with the spirit of the world, the mad rush which characterizes everything around us, the awful hustle and bustle of the ungodly as they rush headlong to eternal death, has affected the members of the household of faith, and few, if any of us, are free from it. One of our most urgent needs is to be delivered from this feverish spirit, for it is rapidly sapping the spiritual vitality of many of God's people. The irreverent speed at which the Holy Scriptures are read in the average pulpit, the rate at which sacred songs are commonly sung, the unholy manner in which many rush into the presence of the Most High God and gabble off the first words that come to their lips are so many examples of this infection. And alas, the same Spirit possesses most of us when we read the Word of God and expositions of that Word. We earnestly ask our readers to make a prayerful study of the words stand, sit, wait, tarry, as they are found in Holy Writ. The title of this magazine implies that it is designed not for lazy people, or for those who are so busily occupied with the things of this world that they have no time, in reality no heart, for the things of God. No, it is published for the benefit of those who are or who wish to become students of Scripture. The articles herein call for study, thoughtful perusal, prolonged meditation. Finally, let not this magazine become a substitute for your own daily study of God's Word. Rather, let it be an incentive for further search on your part to discover the priceless treasures hidden therein. This is from the life of Arthur W. Pink by I. H. Murray, pages 23 and 24.
Turning now to August 1932, Studies in the Scriptures. Search the Scriptures, John 5.39. Editor, Arthur W. Pink, 1886-1952. The seven studies in the contents are The Exaltation of Christ, The Epistle to the Hebrews, The Life of David, Profiting from the Word, Conviction of Sin, Assurance, and Miraculously Delivered. Study number one, The Exaltation of Christ. Jesus has been crowned with glory and honor, Hebrews 2.9, that the eternal Son of God should sit upon the throne of power, presents no difficulty to regenerate minds, but that one in our nature should be exalted to the seat of preeminence is a mystery presented to faith's acceptance. How transcendently amazing that those hands which once were nailed to the cross should now hold the scepter of universal dominion that those feet which were once weary and dust-soiled at Jacob's well, which were washed with a sinful woman's tears and kissed in penitential grief and love with polluted lips, should now have all things both in heaven and in earth, Ephesians 1, 21 and 22, put under them. Yet how blessed to know that that lowly, gentle, compassionate Savior, who can be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, is possessed of all authority and might, supreme majesty and government, so that he can answer his people's prayers, deliver them from their enemies, support them under their trials, and at last take them to be with himself forever. During the days of his humiliation, a veil was drawn over the Savior's glory, yet some rays occasionally broke through, manifesting to attentive spectators his essential and official dignity. The perfect life which he lived, the heavenly doctrine which he taught, the amazing miracles which he performed, proclaimed him to be none other than the only begotten Son of God and the promised Redeemer of Israel. At his birth, the angels heralded him as Christ the Lord, Luke 2.11. At his baptism, they opened heavens, the voice of the Father and the descent of the Spirit upon him in the form of a dove, gave witness that he was more than man, The dark scene of his death was illuminated by supernatural phenomena to signify that he was no ordinary sufferer. Even his burial was not without honor, for though he had been put to death in the most ignominious manner and under the imputation of the greatest of crimes, yet his body was wrapped in fine linen and precious spices by men of high rank and deposited in a new sepulchre, 
However, the circumstances mentioned gave only a partial relief to the deep gloom of self-abasement which had rested upon Christ for thirty-three years. His life, from the manger to the tomb, was via a path of shame and sorrow. It was not until His resurrection that the glory which was to follow His sufferings began to shine forth in unmistakable splendor. Then it was that the character of Christ was vindicated from the aspersions of His enemies. Then it was that the Father openly testified to the Mediator's accomplishment of that work which had been given Him to perform. Then it was that the Lord Jesus obtained eternal redemption for His people, and by rising as their representative, gave pledge that they too should rise after His example and through His merits and power. Having finished the work which had been assigned Him by the Father, it was not necessary for the Mediator to prolong His stay upon earth. Rather, was it expedient that He should leave it in order to enter into His well-earned reward that he should perform those benevolent offices by which the benefits of his humiliation and death should be communicated to his people, and in particular to make way for the coming of another divine person, not in visible form, but in a powerful dispensation of life and light, holiness and consolation. But now... I go my way to him that sent me, and none of you asketh me whether goest thou, but because I have said these things unto you, sorrow hath filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is expedient for you that I go away, for if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you, John 15, 5-7. Accordingly, we read that after he had given all necessary instructions to his disciples, Christ was parted from them and received up into heaven, Luke 24, 51. John Dick said, Our Lord ascended in human nature. The man Christ Jesus has left the earth and entered into that invisible region of the universe where God sits on the throne of His majesty. To His followers, it is a source of high consolation to know that He has not laid aside their nature, but retained it amidst His glory, because they can look up to Him with confidence in the full assurance of His sympathy and see in his exaltation an earnest of their future glory. As God, he could neither descend or ascend, because his divine essence, filling heaven and earth, cannot change its place, and does not admit of that exaltation or that accession of glory which the ascension implies. It was in his assumed nature 
that he who had first descended after ascended, that he might fill all things, heaven with his glory, and the earth with the blessings of his grace. Unquote. At his ascension, the Mediator was attended by the heavenly hierarchies, although invisible to human eyes. The chariots of God are twenty thousand, thousands of angels. The Lord is among them, as in Sinai, in the holy place. Thou hast ascended on high, thou hast led captivity captive, thou hast received gifts for men. Psalm 68, 17 and 18 The angelic hosts celebrated Christ's mighty achievements and attested the high dignity of the victor, who is gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. 1 Peter 3.22 Therefore did they come on the occasion of his ascending to do homage to their Lord and to swell his train when he took possession of his kingdom. Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Ephesians 4.8 Leading captivity is clearly interpreted for us in Judges 5.12, where an ancient custom long observed and well known in the times of the apostles is in view. When a victorious general returned home in public triumph, the captives he had taken were led in chains before him and the richest of the spoils adorned his chariot. Borrowing a figure of speech from this established practice, the Apostle pictures our Mediator as the conqueror of sin, Satan, the world, death, and every spiritual enemy of himself and his people. He had spoiled principalities and powers by releasing many of their victims and now made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Colossians 2.15 Compare also Luke 11.21 and 22 and Hebrews 2.14 and 15. The expression captivity captive is a putting of the abstract for the concrete. Captivity for captives, and that for the purpose of emphasizing the fact that his elect should be freed from their captor, the devil. From what has just been said, the hearer will know that we do not endorse the strange theory which some have advanced, namely, that the souls of the Old Testament saints were outside of heaven before Christ's resurrection and that not until his ascension were they conducted on high. Hebrews 11.40 at once disposes of such a view. No, we regard Ephesians 4.8 as referring to the Mediator's triumph over the infernal powers. Again, John Dick said, 
They who made men captives by their successful stratagems saw the spoils wrested from their hands and were themselves made captive by our Almighty Redeemer. Whether they were compelled to be present and were exhibited as vanquished foes, disgraced and ruined, and reserved to everlasting punishment, we are not warranted by a single expression of which no explanation is given to affirm. Mr. Pink personally believes Colossians 2.15 justifies this conclusion. But there is no doubt that our Savior triumphed over them while He ascended, that in His exaltation to the throne of heaven, they beheld a fearful presage of the final overthrow of their kingdom. Unquote. So then, after the Lord had spoken unto them, He was received up into heaven and sat on the right hand of God. Mark 16.19 it ought not to be necessary for us to point out that such language as this is figurative. Yet, in this day of carnalizing spiritual things, it may be well to supply a word of explanation. Neither the right hand of God nor the posture ascribed to our Savior can be literally understood. God is pure spirit. John 4.24, and has no bodily members. When mention is made of his eyes, ears, feet, hands, we must explain them consistently with the spirituality of his essence and regard them as metaphors employed to assist us in conceiving his perfections and operations. Although the Mediator in his exaltation, has a material body, yet his sitting is as figurative as the right hand of God. In Acts 7.55, he is pictured as standing, and in Revelation 2.1, as he who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. The right hand is the place of honor. Genesis 48.14, 1 Kings 2.19, and Psalm 80.17. Christ's being seated at God's right hand is expressive of His exaltation, of the glory which has been conferred upon Him, of His official dignity. It also denotes the possession of supreme happiness, Psalm 16.11, and of invincible might, Matthew 26.64. It is God's answer to the prayer of His incarnate Son. And now, O Father, glorify Thou me with Thine own self, with the glory which I had with Thee before the world was. John 17.5 the humanity of Christ has been elevated high above all creatures. He is the firstborn entitled to the double portion among many brethren. Romans 8.29 Angels adore Him, and the saints will cast their crowns before His throne. 
all heaven will yet cry, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Revelations 5.12 In the meantime, it is ours to love, serve, and worship Him with all our hearts and to count upon Him for the supply of our every need. Arthur Pink Study number two The Epistle to the Hebrews The Excellency of Faith Chapter 11, verses 1 to 3 Ere we take up the contents of the eleventh chapter, let us briefly review the ground already covered. Chapters 1 and 2 are more or less introductory in their character. In them, the wondrous person of the God-man mediator is presented to our view as superior to the Old Testament prophets and as excelling the angels. The first main division of the epistle commences at chapter 3, verse 1, and runs to the end of chapter 4, verse 15, and treats of the mission of Christ. This is seen to surpass that of either Moses or Joshua, for neither of them led the people into the real rest of God. The section is followed by a practical application in chapter 4, verse 16. The second principal division begins with chapter 5, verse 1, and extends to chapter 10, verse 18, and deals with the priesthood of Christ. This is shown to transcend the ironic indignity, efficacy, and permanency. The section is followed by a practical application contained in chapter 10, verse 19, to chapter 12, verse 29. The closing chapter forms a conclusion to the epistle. The general nature of this epistle, as unto the kind of writing, is paranetical or hortatory, which is taken from its end and design. The exhortation proposed is to constancy and perseverance in the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the profession of the gospel against temptations and persecutions. Both these the Hebrews had to conflict with in their profession. The one from the Judaical church state itself, the other from the members of it. Their temptations to draw back and forsake their profession arose from the consideration of the Judaical church state and Mosaic ordinances of worship, which they were called by the gospel to relinquish. The divine institution of that state with its worship, the solemnity of the covenant whereon it was established, the glory of its priesthood, sacrifices, and other divine ordinances, Romans 9, 4, with their efficacy for acceptance with God, were continually proposed unto them and pressed on them to allure 
and draw them off from the gospel. And the trial was very great after the inconsistency of the two states was made manifest. This gave occasion to the whole doctrinal part of the epistle, the exposition of which, by divine grace and assistance, we have passed through. For therein, declaring the nature, use, end, and signification of all divine institutions under the Old Testament, and allowing unto them all the glory and efficacy which they could pretend unto, the writer of this epistle declares from the scripture itself that the state of the gospel church in its high priest, sacrifice, covenant, worship, privileges and efficacy is incomparably to be preferred above that of the Old Testament. Yea, that all the excellency and glory of that state and all that belonged unto it consisted only in the representation that was made thereby of the greater glory of Christ and the gospel, without which they were of no use and therefore ruinous or pernicious to be persisted in. John Owen said, after he had fixed their minds in the truth and armed them against the temptations which they were continually exposed to, the apostle proceeds to the second means, whereby their steadiness and constancy in the profession of the gospel which he exhorted them unto was already assaulted and was yet like to be assaulted with greater force and fury. This arose from the opposition which befell them and from the persecutions of all sorts that they had endured and were still like to undergo for their faith in Christ Jesus with the profession thereof and observance of the holy worship ordained in the gospel. This they suffered from the obstinate members of the Jewish church as they did the other temptation from the state of that church itself. An account hereof the apostle enters upon in the close of the foregoing chapter, and withal declares unto them the only way and means on their part whereby they may be preserved and kept constant in their profession, notwithstanding all the evils that might befall them therein, and this is by faith alone. From their temptations they were delivered by the doctrine of the truth, and from the opposition made unto them by faith in exercise. Unquote. The particular character of the section begun at chapter 10, verse 19, is not difficult to ascertain. It is addressed to our responsibility. This is at once evident in the let us of chapter 10, verses 22, 23, and 24. In chapter 10, verses 32 to 36, there is a call to patient waiting for the fulfillment of God's promises. Nothing but real faith in the veracity of the promiser 
can sustain the heart and prompt to steady endurance during a protracted season of trial and suffering. Hence, in chapter 10, verse 38, the apostle quotes that striking word from Habakkuk, The just shall live by faith. That sentence really forms the text of which Hebrews 11 is the sermon. The central design of this chapter is to evidence the patience of those who in former ages endured by faith before they received the fulfillment of God's promises. Note particularly verses 13 and 39. John Calvin said, Whoever made this verse 1 the beginning of the 11th chapter has unwisely disjointed the context, for the object of the apostle was to prove what he had already said, that there is need of patience. He had quoted the testimony of Habakkuk, who says that the just lives by faith. He now shows what remained to be proved, that faith can be no more separated from patience than from itself. The order, then, of what he says is this. We shall not reach the goal of salvation except we have patience, for the prophet declares that the just lives by faith, but faith directs us to things afar off which we do not as yet enjoy. It, then, necessarily includes patience. Therefore, the minor proposition in the argument is this. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. Unquote. John Brown said, The Apostle now, for the illustration and enforcement of his exhortation, brings forward a great variety of instances from the history of former ages in which faith had enabled individuals to perform very difficult duties endure very severe trials, and obtain very important blessings. The principles of the Apostles' exhortation are plainly these. They who turn back, turn back unto perdition. It is only they who persevere in believing that obtain the salvation of the soul. Nothing but a persevering faith can enable a person through a constant continuance in well-doing and a patient, humble submission to the will of God to obtain that glory, honor, and immortality which the gospel promises. Nothing but a persevering faith can do this, and a persevering faith can do it, as is plain from what it has done in former ages. Unquote. The order of thought followed by the Apostle in Hebrews 11 was ably and helpfully set forth by an early Puritan. William Perkins, 1595, said, The parts of this whole chapter are two. One, a general description of faith, verses 1 to 4. Two, an illustration or declaration of that description by a large rehearsal of 
manifold examples of ancient and worthy men in the Old Testament, verses 4 to 40. The description of faith consists of three actions or effects of faith, set down in three several verses. The first effect is that faith makes things which are not, but only are hoped for, after a sort, to subsist and to be present with the believer. Verse 1. The second effect is that faith makes a believer approved of God. Verse 2. The third effect is that faith makes a man understand and believe things incredible to sense and reason. Unquote. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, verse 1. The opening now has almost the force of four, denoting a farther confirmation of what had just been declared. At the close of chapter 10, the apostle had just affirmed that the saving of the soul is obtained through believing whereupon he now takes occasion to show what faith is and does. That faith can and does preserve the soul, prompting to steadfastness under all sorts of trials and issuing in salvation, may not only be argued from the effects which is its very nature to produce, but is illustrated and demonstrated by one example after another cited in the verses which follow. It is important to bear in mind at the outset that Hebrews 11 is an amplification and exemplification of chapter 10, verses 38 and 39. The faith which the apostle is describing and illustrating is that which has the saving of the soul annexed to it. Thomas Manton, 1670, said, In verse 1, there is the thing described and the description itself. The thing described is faith. The description is this. It is the substance of things hoped for, and so forth. The description is proper according to the rules of art. Habits or graces are described by their formal acts and acts restrained to their proper objects. So faith is here described by its primary and formal acts, which are referred to their distinct objects. The acts of faith are two. It is the substance. It is the evidence. Think it not strange that I call them acts, for that is it the apostle intends. Therefore, Beza says, in rendering this place, he had rather paraphrased the text than obscure the scope, and he interpreteth it thus. Faith substantiates or gives a subsistence to our hopes and demonstrates things not seen. There is a great deal of difference between the acts of faith and the effects of faith. The effects of faith are reckoned up throughout this chapter. The formal acts of faith are in this verse. These acts are suited 
with their objects. As the matters of belief are yet to come, faith gives them a substance, a being, as they are hidden from the eyes of sense and carnal reason. Faith also gives them an evidence, and doth convince men of the worth of them, so that one of these acts belongs to the understanding, the other to the will. Unquote. The contents of verse 1 do not furnish so much a formal definition of faith as they supply a terse description of how it operates and what it produces. Faith, whether natural or spiritual, is the belief of a testimony. Here, faith is believing the testimony of God. How it operates in reference to the subjects of this testimony, whether they be considered simply as future or as both invisible and future, and the effects produced in and on the soul. The Holy Spirit here explains first. He tells us that faith is the substance of things hoped for. The Greek word rendered substance has been variously translated. The margin of the American version gives ground or confidence. The revised version has assurance in the text and giving substance to in the margin. The Greek word is hypostasis and is rendered confident. Should be this confidence of boasting, as in Baxter's interlinear, in both 2 Corinthians 9.4 and 11.17. Person should be subsistence or essential being in Hebrews 1.3 and confidence in chapter 3 verse 14. Personally, the writer believes it has a double force, so will seek to expound it accordingly. Faith is the confidence of things hoped for. In this chapter, and in general throughout the New Testament, faith is far more than a bare assent to anything revealed and declared by God. It is a firm persuasion of that which is hoped for, because it assures its possessor not only that there are such things, but that through the power and faithfulness of God he shall yet possess them. Thus it becomes the ground of expectation. The word of God is the objective foundation on which my hopes rest, but faith provides a subjective foundation, for it convinces me of the certainty of them. Faith and confidence are inseparable just so far as I am counting upon the ability and fidelity of the promiser. Shall I be confident of receiving the things promised and which I am expecting? We believe and are sure. John 6.69 From what has just been said, the hearer will perhaps perceive better the force of the rather peculiar word substance in the text of the American version. It comes from two Latin words, substans, meaning standing under. Faith provides a firm standing ground while I await 
the fulfillment of God's promises. Faith furnishes my heart with a sure support during the interval. Faith believes God and relies upon His veracity. As it does so, the heart is anchored and remains steady, no matter how fierce the storm nor how protracted the season of waiting. These all died in faith, not having received the fulfillment of the promises, but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them and embraced them. Hebrews 11.13 Real faith issues in a confident and standing expectation of future things. Faith is the subsistence of things hoped for. As the marginal reading of the Revised Version suggests, giving substance to, crediting the sure testimony of God, resting on His promises and expecting the accomplishment of them, faith gives the object hoped for at a future period, a present reality and power in the soul as if already possessed. For the believer is satisfied with the security afforded and acts under the full persuasion that God will not fail of his engagement. Faith gives the soul an appropriating hold of them. Matthew Henry said, Faith is a firm persuasion and expectation that God will perform all that he has promised to us in Christ. And this persuasion is so strong that it gives the soul a kind of possession and present fruition of those things, gives them a subsistence in the soul by the first fruits and foretastes of them, so that believers in the exercise of faith are filled with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Unquote. The confident Expectation which faith inspires gives the objects of the Christian's hope a present and actual being in his heart. Faith does not look out with cold thoughts about things to come, but imparts life and reality to them. Faith does for us spiritually what fancy does for us naturally. There is a faculty of the understanding which enables us to picture to the mind's eye things which are yet future. But faith does more. It gives not an imaginary appearance to things, but a real subsistence. Faith is a grace which unites subject and object. There is no need to ascend to heaven, for faith makes distant things nigh. See Romans 10, 6 and 7. Faith, then, is the bond of union between the soul and the things God has promised. By believing, we receive. By believing in Christ, He becomes ours. John 1.12 Therefore, does faith enable the Christian to praise the Lord for future blessings as though He were already in the full possession of them? But how does faith bring to the heart a present subsistence of future things. First, by drawing from the promises that which by divine institution is stored up in them. 
Hence they are called the breasts of consolation. Isaiah 66, 11. Second, by making the promises the food of the soul. Jeremiah 15, 16, which cannot be unless they are really present unto it. Third, by conveying an experience of their power as unto all the ends for which they are purposed. It is as divine truth is appropriated and assimilated that it becomes powerfully operative in the soul. Fourth, by communicating unto us the first fruits of the promises. Faith gives a living reality to what it absorbs, and so real and potent is the impression made that the heart is changed into the same image. 2 Corinthians 3.18 Ere passing on, let us pause for a word of application. Many profess to believe, but what influence have their hopes upon them? How are they affected by the things which their faith claims to have laid hold of? I profess to believe that sin is a most heinous thing. Do I fear, hate, shun it? I believe that ere long I shall stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Does my conduct events that I am living in the light of that solemn day? I believe that the world is an empty bauble. Do I despise its painted tinsel? This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D, M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. 
And if this principle is adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.